Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Resuming Debate podcast. I'm your host, Member of Parliament, uh, Garnet Jenis, and uh, I've really enjoyed uh, getting into podcasting, uh, the depth of conversation that we're able to have. I try to bring uh, depth and significance to, to my interventions in the House of Commons, but it's much harder when you have 30 seconds or 10 minutes compared to the opportunity in an hour to bring on thoughtful guests, uh, to bring people from different uh, party backgrounds with different kinds of life experience, uh, and to bring you more color and context for the big issues that are being discussed in Canada. Uh, if you're a new listener, uh, welcome to you. And if you're a longtime listener, welcome back. So many of you I know have been following the events in Iran, a, a country with, a, with an oppressive totalitarian government, where in spite of that, uh, the people uh, are showing incredible courage. And yes, it's, it's in response to the murder of Masa Amini. Yes, it's about the, the restrictive rules that apply to women. But, but it's, I think, also about a broader revolutionary message that it's time for freedom, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. It's time for uh, for political change, and I, uh, I have I've been adding my voice, doing what I can from the, from the Canadian Parliament on this. So I'm very pleased to have two incredible guests, both people that I've I've known and worked with in the past of uh, of Iranian origin themselves, uh, who are uh, who are leaders here in Canada working on on these issues. Uh, Saya Hassan is a, is a lawyer and a human rights activist. And Dr. Riza Maridi is a, is a human rights activist as well, but also a former politician. He served as a liberal MPP in the Ontario legislature. He's a liberal, I'm a conservative, and I don't know that we've, we've ever found anything we disagree on. So it's great to have both of you uh, on today. Sayla, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. And I, I think for contextualizing this, of course, we're going to dig in a deep way into current events. In Iran, but I think it, it it's it would be great for people to hear your stories as well. So, so Sai, tell us a bit about about your background, your family coming to Canada, etc. Okay, thank you so much for having me, Garnet, and thank you for being the voice of the Iranian people, bringing their voice to the parliament. That has been so so appreciated in Iran and here as well. So, thank you for that. My story, um, it started when I was seven. I was born in Iran right when the Iran and Iraq war started. My father was against the regime in Iran, the Islamic regime, and he was very vocal, uh, but he wasn't part of any organization. He was just very unhappy with what was going on. And when I was seven, my parents decided that they were going to flee Iran because we could just no longer stay there. My father was being prosecuted. And my parents were also very concerned having me and my sister having two daughters. They didn't want us to grow up in a country where there was no equality between men and women. And you know there was a lot of repression. And so we moved to Turkey and we were there as refugees for five years until we were able to come mm -hmm. to Canada uh, almost 30 years ago now. So it's been quite a while. And I started my activism when I was about 20 years old when I was in university. So that's 21 years ago. And that gives away my age. Um, but when I was in Carleton University in Ottawa, I was very interested and involved with the human rights in Iran. And I saw that there wasn't really any student voices in Canada and in the universities. And my sister and I, we started a student club, an organization that dealt specifically with the human rights issues in Iran. And to the best of my knowledge, that was the first student organization that was ever created in Canada that dealt specifically with human rights. 
And over the years, I went to law school, I became a lawyer because I'm very passionate about the charter and the civil liberties that we have in Canada. And I continued with my activism through speaking at conferences, writing articles, speaking to politicians like yourself. That's how we met, I think it was seven or eight years ago. And others like James Bazan has also been just incredibly active in that area, in the area of human rights in Iran. And, and I've continued my work uh, over the years and I'm just incredibly humbled by and, and encouraged and hopeful by what I see in Iran right now and, and the courage that I see from people in Iran right now. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And um, and I look forward to digging more into those those current events. But it's great to hear hear your story. And I, I wasn't going to ask your your age, but um, but you're you're someone who was born after the revolution started. Yeah. And Reza, I, I hope I'm not telling any tales out of school here, but you're a little bit older than uh, than Saya here. So so tell us a bit about about your experience as well and uh, your uh, your journey to Canada. Well, thank you very much, Bernard, for having me on your show, on your podcast. And uh, uh, I echo on what uh, Sai has already said, you know, thank you. And also James Bazan and the many of your colleagues at our uh, parliament, at the House of Commons, for your advocacy on behalf of the Iranian people and also your activism for human rights uh, in Iran in particular. So we are very grateful. Um, it has been a great pleasure to get to know you. And I remember that one event, uh, three of us actually organized at the Ontario legislature when I was the MPP over there, representing the people of Richmond Hill uh, at the Ontario legislature. Well, my story is, uh, is not very different than Sayer's story and not very diff many different than uh, almost 8 million Iranians now living in uh, out of Iran. They were scattered, they've been scattered in almost every country around the world. Uh, from you know mostly populated uh, country such as the United States to very very small tiny tiny island countries uh, in, at the middle of South Pacific Ocean. That's where actually uh, my wife, my family, and I, when we left Iran in 1987, uh, we went to Fiji Islands, which is an island country, small country with less than a million population. Uh, so we spent there for about two and a half years. I was uh, I was a professor at the university there. And from there, we moved to Canada in 1990. So uh, it's now 32 years uh, we have been living in Canada. Um, in terms of uh, birth, yes, uh, I've been born several decades before the revolution. So when the revolution happened, I was a professor at one of the universities in Tehran. And also I was the dean of the School of Sciences over there. And I witnessed what happened in, in the universities, in academia, um, the, the regime, the Iranian regime, they shut down universities for three years. Can you imagine in a country where we didn't have any <laughs> university college uh, for three years? And as they started shutting down the universities, uh, uh, they, they began uh, purging uh, academics from the universities. They purged, God knows how many hundreds of uh, professors, assistant professors, associate professors, academics <laughs> from the universities. And one of them, of course, it was me. And I was lucky that only I was purged, but two of my colleagues, uh, uh, they have been ex executed by the regime. Uh, so it, it was very, very, uh, very, very harsh environment. The regime created a very, very harsh environment. And that harsh environment has been continuing over the past 43 years as we speak now. So um, yes, it, it, is very, uh, it's very interesting from one point of view that to see that every Iranian Every one of those eight millions 
uh, living, as I said, in the small island countries up to you know European countries uh, or North American countries. Each of us, uh, Garnet, we have our own story. And when you sit down with people and then they start, you know, telling their story, their parents' story. Um, so, um, but let us hope that the, the life of this regime will be uh, will come to an end in the near future, as we speak now. As you know, um, demonstrations and the re revolution, in fact, is going on in Iran uh, as we talk now. So yes, that is basically absolutely. a bit of my life story uh, since I came to this country, Canada. And when I came to Canada in 1990 with my family, uh, I, I had only came with four suitcases, that's all. And a couple of university degrees and credentials in our, in our suitcases, that's how we arrived in Canada. But then I started working, of course, uh, as a scientist and then entered into politics because I wanted to serve my country, Canada. Uh, I, I felt that this is the duty of the Iranian community uh, to, to this wonderful country uh, who opened its arms most warmly to uh, people fleeing their country, Iran, and coming to this wonderful land. So I did that, and unfortunately, I was successful in 2007. I got reelected in 2011 and 2014, and I had the honor of serving in the Ontario cabinet for six years in two portfolios. Uh, one is higher education, universities and colleges, and training, and the other one was research, innovation, and science. Uh, and I am glad to say that um, uh, Garnet, since I did uh, uh, began my my journey in politics, many Iranians they also follow suit, and now we have uh, we have four actually uh, MPs from two MPs and two MPPs from Iranian uh, from Iranian descent serving our uh, in our legislatures and parliament, and also there are many people who uh, you know participate in the. In the elections, both uh, provincial, federal, and municipal, as a candidate, and of course, many, many of them, uh, they go out and and vote and participate in our democratic process, by one way or another. Thank you. Absolutely, uh, yeah. The the Iranian community uh, is so active in Canadian domestic politics as well as in uh, uh, promoting freedom and democracy uh, in in Iran. We've seen uh, just incredible numbers of people. I think fifty thousand at one at one recent recent rally. So um, thank you both of you for sharing your background and your story. But just before we get to the current events, my sort of journey of awareness uh, around Iran, you know, I, I recall basically it starting in kind of, I think it was 2009. Uh, there was a big uh, protest movement then early on in, in President Obama's uh, mm -hmm. tenure in office. And um, I think that was the first time for me as someone who was more politically active, really getting the sense that the Iranian people don't don't want their the regime that that uh, rules over them and uh, have shown um, really incredible courage and in taking to the streets. And it, but at the time there there was uh, you know horrific violence against those protesters and and that uh, protest movement uh, ended. And then successively, including a number of times uh, since I've been a member of parliament, we've seen these uh, these kinds of movements. So this seems to be something that happens periodically, where the pain and the outrage manifests itself in 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 sharp protests. But I'm also getting the sense from from people I've talked to that something is different now. That it's not it's not just another moment that's similar to those past moments, but something different is happening. So I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on, on some of those protest movements in recent history, uh, and then what's, how they compare to what's happening now. 
Um, maybe I'll go. I think in terms of scale, this is probably the biggest one that we have ever had. And when when I I was thinking about it and comparing it to the protests that we had in 2009, and that was in in relation to an election. And I put that in quotation marks because we don't have free elections in Iran. Uh, it was an election where the reformist president did want did not win the election, and people were extremely unhappy about that, and they took to the streets. And it was huge. But the difference, I think, there were quite a few differences. One was that the protests were mostly in the major cities. They were not widespread, and they were certainly not in smaller uh, areas. And another difference was that you could still see a little bit of religious connotation in some of the protests and some, some of the slogans. For example, people would go onto their rooftops early in the morning or at night, and they would say, Allahu Akbar, which means uh, God is great. And that was something that was happening throughout the big cities. And it was uh, it was part of the protest that, that people were saying this, but it had a religious connotation to it. Not all of the slogans were had that, but that one, it really stood out to me at least. And we don't see that anymore. That has completely gone. Any kind of religious connotation has is absolutely gone now. The protest right now is very, very secular. And we can see that in the symbol of oppression for Iranian women, which is the mandatory hijab. And that's the first thing that, that has gone. And the protests were sparked because of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old girl who didn't have her hijab done properly again in, in, in quotation marks. And she was killed uh, while she was in custody because of her hijab. And so now we're seeing all these women, and it's not just women in their 20s and 30s like we've seen previously. We're seeing little girls, 13, 14, 15, young girls at schools, and I'm getting emotional just, just talking about it, um, but they're taking off their hijab in school, knowing the risk. They're painting over Khamenei's pictures in school. They're putting up pictures of Masa Amini. It, it's just incredible how widespread it is now in terms of age alone. Uh, we're seeing older women, women that have worn the hijab all their lives, 80-year-old, 70-year-old women taking off the hijab and saying this is in support of the women who are going outside and they're cutting off their hair. So I think that it, it's just the, the range, the the enormousness of it and the fact that it's not just one age group, it's everyone it's the young it's the old it's the it's everyone and the while women have been absolutely in the forefront the men have also been supportive and right there along with the women supporting them and I think it's just it's been incredible and that's the difference that I see now versus before yeah and I think that is an important point about the men participating as well because obviously these are these are women led and and that's something to to celebrate um, but I think some of the commentary in the West has created the impression that maybe it's the women alone. And that's, yeah. that's maybe a little bit more, more of a, would be, would be you know, that, that it's sort of divided that way, but no, it's women leading and, but men are, are in They're right there. Yeah. They're very much involved. I mean, you can see all in the videos, they're right there supporting the women. If women are getting attacked, they're right there defending the women. It's very unified. It's everyone together. Yeah. Reza, your take on on this uh, comparing kind of the the current moment to some of the other protests that we've seen. Well, first, first of all, um, Grant, I must tell you that you know the protests or the revolution, as they say now, is happening in Iraq. 
is not something new. I mean, since the regime came into office in 1979, people started protesting against, against the regime in very many occasions. Uh, whenever they had a chance, they protested. Uh, and of course, the, 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 the 2009 protest, which known as Green Movement, was the biggest since that time. And of course, since then, there has been also very many protests but this one is, is unique, as I said, this is unique. I think one of the uniqueness of this uh, current uh, protest or, or, um, or, or, or revolution which is happening is that it is continuous. Uh, it has been now close to 40 days uh, or even more than 40 days now. So it is not just only one or two days, it's 40 days. The second characteristic is that this uh, revolution now doesn't have a particular leader. Uh, they are not gathering in one location and protesting. In, in almost in every city, they are protesting in different streets, different areas, uh, and without any, any leadership, really. But they have their own leaders, of course, uh, on the ground, but not one unified leader. Uh, and the other characteristics, uh, as uh, uh, Saya said, it is purely a secular movement, and the men, the women, children, even children, school children, high school children, elementary school children, they are also involved in this, uh, in, in this movement, in this protest. So in terms of its characteristics, it is very, very unique. Maybe it is unique in the world, actually. It is started, as you mentioned, by, uh, by killing of, uh, uh, of Jian, uh, Jian Amiri, or, or sorry, uh, Jina Amiri, Masa Amini, um, but that was a kind of uh, trigger because they have killed so many mass Amiris in the past. And since then also they have killed at least two, 300 people and how many hundreds of people they have been or thousands of people they have wounded and imprisoned. But that particular point, I think, uh, you know, um, uh, acted in a way that the society was just in the verge of, of explosion and the whole, the whole country exploded at one point. And since then, the regime tried to, uh, uh, to divert people's attention to foreign forces or foreigners, saying this is the uh, doing of the Americans, of the Israelis, uh, that didn't work. And then they tried to create some conflict in the Kurdish region of Iran, but uh, that didn't work. And now they are trying to create a conflict between uh, in our borders with the Republic of Azerbaijan. And now they are trying to, to create a conflict over there in order to divert the attention of the public in Iran to some uh, foreign uh, sources. But uh, I, I think people of Iran, they are now very, very well versed. They know what's happening. They know what they are doing and they know what they want and what they don't want. Uh, I think clearly they don't want this regime. This is, this is the message they are sending to the world leaders. And I hope our leaders in Canada uh, also hear this very message of the Iranian people that these people, you know, very vividly they are saying that we don't want this regime. And so that, you know, foreign countries, uh, um, the US, Canada and other countries, they should really modify their policies with regard to Iran and try to support the Iranian people rather than, you know, communicating with, the, uh, with other countries. I am so uh, pleased and, and for that matter, I congratulate you um, Garnet and your party when you were in government, former Prime Minister Harper, uh, you know, severed the diplomatic relationship with, with this brutal regime in Iran. And Canada became the first country in the world to do that. And we are so proud as Canadians from our government. And I, 
I said this a couple of times that I express my sincere thanks to Prime Minister Harper for doing that. So I think other countries should follow suit and that is the time to do it. Mm-hmm. So many great points there to pick up on. I'd like to probe this, this issue of in terms of revolution, in terms of not wanting the regime, probe a little bit the issue of, of how that could unfold. Uh, we've seen some instances where there's massive protest movements and eventually then, you know, the maybe the military is, is ordered to fire on civilians, the military refuses, and then the regime goes. So I'm thinking kind of early Arab Spring, Tunisia, Egypt, where it was, it was a little bit quicker, let's say. But then you had other cases like Libya or like Syria, where notwithstanding a significant groundswell of opposition, the regime's dug in and, and, and refused to, to give in to that popular will. And, and therefore, you know, battle lines were drawn. It became a, it became a civil war instead of a, instead of a revolution. It may not be a strict binary between those things, but what, what do you think is more realistic for Iran in terms of what could unfold uh, to get us from where we are now to, to uh, the future we all hope for uh, with, a, with a free and democratic Iran? I, I think if this revolution is happening in Iran is very different than, uh, than Arab Spring uh, in, in its character, it's in its nature. And also this is in fact the third revolution Iranians are having the past 100 years. This is the third one. So I, I think this revolution is going to succeed uh, to establish, establish a democratic uh, government in Iran. Now, how this is going to unfold, of course, it's, uh, uh, we can't say exactly how it's going to unfold, but I think there are signs that the regime is going to collapse from inside. Uh, more or less the same process happened in the Soviet Union. I, I, I think it may, it may end up uh, in, in such a direction. And in Iran, of course, uh, military will be one, uh, one, uh, one decisive factor, but I think the second one will be the religious establishment. I mean, those uh, Ayatollahs and uh, those religious people there, uh, for their own future, if some of those, um, you know, the grand Ayatollahs, if they come out and uh, uh, pull out their support from the regime, I think that also will discredit the regime and will weaken the regime greatly. And this may also happen because those people, they are going, I mean, they are seeing, we see, we hear uh, some of them commenting, saying that, you know, if the regime goes, we will be dead. Uh, so for their own survival, they may they may come out and do that. So that also may happen. But I think my own feeling is that this regime is going to collapse from inside. One another major characteristics of this sort of revolution in Iran is that not only uh, men, women, children, you know, students, uh, they are together, but in terms of uh, various ethnicities in Iran, they're also together. The regime uh, tried to send out the message that uh, you know the Kurds in Iran, uh, they want they are separatists uh, or Balochis are separatists and the Turks are separatists and others, uh, but they start sending the messages that uh, we love each other. So that is that's what happened. So people are united uh, from, from various ethnic backgrounds and from various geographic of Iran. They're all protesting in every, I hear that there are maybe a thousand protests going on every day in different locations, in different cities. So that is a very unique characteristics. I think this, what's happening in Iran now from, uh, from uprising point of view is, is quite, quite, new, quite new. 
And I'm sure the sociologists and politicians in the future, or political analysts, I should say, they will be uh, analyzing uh, the character of this uh, movement which is going on there. Yeah, um, I'll go to you, Sai, in a second, but I did want to just do one one quick follow-up on a, on a point you were making. You were talking about the regime collapsing from within. You talked about the religious establishment. But can I probe the military side of this a little bit? In Egypt, for example, the, the military had kind of a separate personality from the regime and during the Arab Spring period. And, and I, I, I agree, many, many differences in terms of, of those, those movements. But that was a case where you know, the military as a somewhat separate institution from the regime uh, said no to carrying out its its uh, its wishes. I mean, in the case of Iran, we talk a lot about the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is a which is very much an organ of the regime. It just and this is something I don't understand well in terms of the institution. So is is there the IRGC and then a separate Iranian army? Um, is there the possibility that the army would oppose the IRGC or that the IRGC would go a different direction from the leaders? I mean, how, how does this dynamic work out institutionally in terms of what where the coming apart could be? Well, in Egypt, as you said, you know, the army was the military of Egypt, not the army of the president. Right. Uh, so uh, this is in contrast to what we had during the Shah's time in Iran. Our military was called imperial army or mm. imperial military. So it was basically related to the king. Uh, but in Egypt, the army was a, a army of the country, of the nation. The right. same thing in, in Turkey, for example. Again, the army is, is the country's military. So with, the, with this current regime, the IRGC and also the regular army, they are practically the arms of the regime. Uh, even sometimes people distinguish between uh, you know, the regular army and IRGC. Now they are, they are controlled by, by the same government after 43 years. I mean, the current uh, regular army of Iran is not the uh, regular army we had 43 years ago. It's all controlled by the regime. They're all their own people under a different name, I think. If it was otherwise, they could have acted by now uh, after 40 days of uh, brutal killing and uh, uh, suppressing the public. So I think what will going to happen is that, or may happen, uh, is that if this thing continue for maybe for some time, uh, some elements within IRGC and the army uh, they may uh, they may leave the government or become um, you know um, they, they they and they become towards maybe the people and then somehow somehow this IRGC uh, structure may um, may start weakening and at that point and and also if the Grand Ayatollah then they come out and also pull out their support from the regime from Khamenei uh, then you know they all may help each other and then that leads to some kind of collapse of the regime. Mm. But this okay. is just you know, one of one of the scenarios, of course. Yeah, uh, so I, I'd love love to hear you uh, pick up on on any of those points. Uh, but I but but I'm also curious to drill down onto the the leaderless dimension of of the protests and what implications that would have for a for a perspective uh, perspective transition. I mean, how is in terms of the current movement? How how is it all kind of coming together? On the opposition side, and are there are there different um, are there different elements with with different views on what the future of Iran should be, or is it is it um, is it very united? And what what's uh, what are your thoughts on how how this uh, process could unfold? I think it's hard to predict at this point, but for sure, I think what we see now is that there's no going back. This has been going on now for months and a half, and. It's just too big. The government has not been able to crush it the way that they have been able to do the previous protests. People have just, they're not, they're, 
not discouraged. They're not scared. They're in the streets. And maybe I shouldn't say they're not scared because they probably are very scared. It takes a lot of courage to do what they're doing right now. But they're there. They ha they're risking it all for freedom. And I think so there's no going back. But in terms of what the future holds, it's it's hard to tell. But this is my personal opinion because I've never been part of a we have a lot of different political organizations outside of the country. And I've never been part of any of those because it's my belief that people in Iran should and are able to choose the path that they want to choose. And it's going to be up to them. And I think they have the intelligence, they have the capability to make the decision of what kind of government do they want? They've made it very clear they want a secular government. I think that has that's amply clear. That's what they're looking for. Uh, but what kind of government are they looking for? What kind of leadership? It's going to be up to the Iranians to decide, not to the foreign governments. And I think us living in Canada and in other countries, to some extent, you know, we all have our opinions. But it's really the Iranian people who are risking their lives, and they're the ones that have to decide. I know it's very difficult when you're in, inside the country to have leadership because all the leaders, as we know, they're arrested and they're tortured and they're executed. And we have so many political activists that are in prison right now as well. Um, but I, I believe that the people in Iran should and can and have the capability to choose their leadership. I think what we do need from foreign countries, from the Western countries and the free world is really support in terms of stop legitimizing the Islamic regime, both politically and economically. That's really what we need, what the Iranians need from the Western world, uh, because that is what's going to help the revolution, as Mr. Moridi puts it, and, and I believe that this is uh, the start of a revolution that's going on in Iran right now. So that's really what we need, is stop legitimizing this regime and let the Iranian people choose their path and their future and a secular government for themselves. Lots of really important points there. Uh, thank you. And it's, uh, I think, a good jumping off point then for saying, okay, uh, what are those policies that we should be undertaking here in, uh, here in Canada? Uh, some, some people might ask, does it matter? Can, can we actually uh, half a world away, say or do things uh, as parliamentarians, as average citizens in the lawmaking process that make a difference. And what what would those things be? Sai, do you want to kick us off on, on this point as well? Sure. I think it absolutely makes a difference on two different levels. First of all, people are on the street and they the regime wants to make them believe that they're alone, that nobody's watching, that nobody cares and that they can be killed and tortured and raped and that's not a problem. So when we see people like yourself, you know, James Bazan, other parliamentaries who are coming out and they're condemning these actions, people in Iran see this and they see, okay, we're not alone. There are politicians, there are other people who care, who are being our voice right now. And that gives them further courage to go outside and do what they're doing because they know that they're not alone. And that's important on that level. And then the second level, I think this is the first time that I have seen the current liberal government ever, even in word, condemn what is happening in Iran. I've never heard the prime minister ever condemn the Iranian Islamic regime before. And I think that's a good step. It's the first step. It's not by any means, you know, all that needs to be done. Words are good, but without actions, obviously, they are not effective. And we need this government, yes, 
they've now condemned what's going on in Iran. I think that's good. They have now said that, you know, part of the revolutionary guards are going to be inadmissible from coming to Canada. It's going to be in the Immigration Act. That's good. I think those are all positive steps. But it leaves me with some questions. For example, why are we not putting them the entirety of the organization, not just few select people, why are we not putting them in the criminal code where there's actually, you know, put them in the criminal court as a terrorist organization. That way there is concrete, real consequences for them and for anybody that associates with them. Why are we not doing that? And then what are we doing with everybody that's already here? Because we know, and we Iranian Canadians have been saying for years now that the regime affiliates, agents, revolutionary guards are here in Canada, investing their money, spying on Canadians, Iranian Canadian activists, threatening people, intimidating people. What is the government gonna do about these people? Are they going to be returned back to Iran? Are they going to be identified? What steps are gonna be taken? And then in terms of the sanctions on these particular individuals that have been named, most of these people don't have their assets under their own name. They have it under the families and you know close people. Are they going to look into that? What's going to happen with all of those monies and those investments which have been stolen from the Iranian people and brought to Canada? So those are some questions that have been raised for me, and I'm hoping the government will be able to answer. Hmm. Yeah, to, to, to put a fine point on it, I mean, I, I have been hearing since I was first elected from, uh, and it's not just the Iranian community, but it's a big issue for the Iranian community, this, this sense that regime figures steal money from uh, from people and launder it here in Canada. You know, they, they bring it here and they uh, and they enjoy the, the, the free lives that they deny to people back in Iran. And this is a this is a major point of agitation. I want I want to come come back to it. Uh, but just on the issue of sanctions and actions, Reza, I know you're uh, I know you're a, a very uh, multi-party sort of guy. You've got good friends in uh, in all parties, and you're widely respected across the spectrum. But you were elected as a as a liberal, and so I would imagine you have a lot of uh, a lot of particular connections and relationships with people in the in the current government. How how do you how do you evaluate uh, their performance kind of over time, but also currently in terms of some of the actions that Saya talked about needing to be taken to support the people of Iran? Well, I think um, generally speaking, uh, the, our government's action over the past you know, five weeks has been good. Uh, I think people are happy that you know, the government uh, took the action in terms of uh, um, sanctioning 10,000 leaders of the uh, IRGC and the Iranian regime and also um, enacting on the Magnitsky law. So these are some of the actions they are taking, but of course, uh, the expectation was that the IRGC be put to uh, uh, on the list of uh, terrorist organizations. That is the legislation actually you brought to the parliament, Garnet, four years ago, and the prime minister was the first person uh, being liberal and the leader of the Liberal Party at that time. And still, he is now, but uh, he was the first person to stand up and vote for your motion. Uh, so, but I think going back to your previous question, you know, our country, Canada, Garnet, under Prime Minister Mulroney. Uh, was the leader uh, in, the, in, the, in the question of uh, South Africa. Uh, this goes back to 1990. I remember I was new in Canada in those days, uh, but I knew very well that uh, Prime Minister Mulroney was the key person in liberating, uh, one of the key person at least, uh, in liberating South Africa 
from that brutal apartheid regime. And he's the one who took the leadership. I think uh, our government uh, can do the same thing now because Canada has that history. Um, so we should be really taking that lead. I mean, again, our country, Canada, is the first country in the world with severe diplomatic relationship with Iran. Now, a, a, a petition going out in, in the internet uh, this morning, I looked at the over half a million people signed this petition asking G7 countries to expel uh, Iranian ambassadors from uh, diplomats from their countries. So Canada did this under Premier, under Prime Minister Harper several years ago. So we have that, uh, uh, that history. And so why not to use that, uh, you know, uh, to follow that, that tradition in this country? Our current government should be doing this. Uh, the, the message Iranian people has sent to the world that we do not want this regime. We want the regime to be changed. But how can they do it? I mean, they need the world's help. And now they are facing with a brutal regime with its uh, military forces under different names, but they are all IRGC, but they're under different names. There are different factions, different groups. Um, so they are basically fighting with, uh, with nothing in their hand. Uh, so it is now for Canada, as Prime Minister Mulroney did, I hear the story that he went to President Reagan and they said, we need to bring this to the end. And they did. And they helped, you know, the uh, Mandela and the other freedom fighters in, in South Africa and the transition happened. I mean, back to your previous question again, you know, uh, if such a uh, such an initiative uh, is implemented by Canada, it could be I a mean, transition, one scenario for transition from this regime to the democratic regime in the future could be through negotiations. I mean, if this regime sees that the world community, they are backing up, they are not with them anymore, and that is the demand from the world community that, you know, leave the power to the people of the, people of the, of the country. So they may, they may start, you know, leaving the government by negotiations. Yeah, I appreciate your assessment. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll kind of put to you my assessment of kind of the, the liberal government's trajectory and you know the hat I, I wear, everybody does, but it seems to me that there's been a, uh, like a significant trajectory uh, in the government's tone on this over the last seven years. They came into power in 2015 um, opposing what conservatives had done. They came into power in 2015 saying that they wanted to reopen the embassy in Iran. And um, and there were events that, that really uh, shifted the public attention, various human rights abuses that were kind of in the foreground when we had the opposition motion to list the IRGC as a terrorist organization and the liberals voted for it. So that was that was one kind of step, but they never implemented it. And then they still failed to list anybody under the Magnitsky Act up until up until uh, recently there was, and, I, and it's not even clear what to me what sanctions instrument they're using now, but up until recently, certainly nobody was listed in Iran uh, under under the Magnitsky Act. And it, it seemed like, but then, well, well, two years ago, there was the downing of flight PS752. And that was another issue where there was pressure from the Canadian public. Canadian government didn't react enough, in my view. And now there's so much mounting public pressure within the Iranian community and elsewhere that we now see the announcement of uh, additional sanctions that are that are still quite late in the in the process and are still not enough. So 
in a way, you could say that's a positive trajectory in that the Liberal government certainly is not saying the same things today that they said in 2015. Uh, but on the other hand, they've been they've been behind in in a in a chronological sense and in terms of taking the action that's required. And my concern is that if this issue isn't in the news as much, and it's inevitable, really, that 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 things that take time stop being covered uh, in the media at some point, that we'll see a, a reduction in uh, in action. Is is that is that a description of the trajectory? Do you think it's overly partisan, or do you think it's it's fair? Maybe Reza, quick quick response, and then I'll go to you, Saya, well, for your assessment no. after that. I, I don't think it's a part of them, Garda. This is basically the chronological events uh, happened yeah. over the past, uh, you know, past uh, seven years, uh, and, and now we are we are quite, you know, I mean, people are somehow happy that government took actions, uh, and that is, I mean, it was late. It should have been much earlier than this, but um, but still, something they have, they have taken some actions. But I think this is not enough at all. I think they should do more. Uh, they should come up very shortly. First of all, they, they could uh, they could cancel the super visas of regime elements either themselves and their relatives living in Canada, and those have been you know the, their children are students in our universities and, and the others as well. So, so they have their relatives, their permanent residence in Canada. I mean, these are I, I'm pretty sure that Immigration Canada they have a list of their relatives. They should act quickly on that. Uh, they shouldn't be waiting for two years or three years or, or you know, or, or even a month. They could do it in days and weeks, and they should do that. I mean, just saying that we're going to sanction 10,000 people, that's not applicable. Who are those 10,000 people, and what are what do they mean by, by sanctions? Uh, yeah. So it, it has to have some teeth. Yeah, I, I do notice this as well, like in the Ukraine context as well, uh, mm -hmm. part of the rhetoric of the government is, they're always adding more sanctions, more sanctions, more sanctions. But <laughs> there's an infinite number of sanctions you can add by by upping the restriction on this person and upping. The, like the question is, are we doing a large enough volume in the right areas that's going to have the decisive impact? Uh, Sai, what's your what's your kind of evaluation of the government's the Canadian government's response on some of these uh, these key issues that we've we've agreed are important? I think it's unfortunate that it has taken the murder of so many innocent people for these even small changes to be brought about. And again, they're positive changes, but why did it have to take the murder of so many people for this to, you know, for the prime minister to even condemn what is going on? Why is taking so why what is taking so long? And and it's also concerning to me that the prime minister hasn't gone to a single rally to speak to any of the Iranian Canadians to see what do they want, what their concerns are. I mean, we've seen the prime minister attend other rallies in the height of COVID. And yet for whatever reason, he's chosen not to attend these rallies. And that's concerning to me as an Iranian Canadian. Why is he not attending? Why is he not speaking to the Iranian Canadians? So th those are two of my, my concerns. And I think, again, words are good, but we need action. We are not seeing the the kind of action that we should. And uh, and I'm really glad that we have people like you, like James Bazan, who you know are are new the con the new conservative uh, leader, Mr. Polyvere, who are very active and and outspoken about this on the parliament. I think that's what's going to keep the government on its toes, and it's going to not you know let this die down when the media stops covering it. Yeah, we we need to be persistent and bringing these issues up and uh, 
And certainly we will. Any any thoughts on the other parties? Uh, Block, NDP. Uh, I've noticed the NDP as well. Um, I think some, sometimes because of the sort of the women's rights dimension of this, you see lately maybe parties of the left getting more engaged than they've been in the past because uh, they really like the idea of a women women led movement. But some of that is actually dissonant with their own histories, like the NDP voted against listing the IRGC as a terrorist organization. And it's still not entirely clear to me where, where they stand. Do either of you have thoughts on, uh, on, on what we're seeing from, from some of the other parties on this? It's not clear to me where they stand either. But I think, as you said, you would expect the parties on the left to be supportive of women's rights and what's going on. And I haven't really seen anything very... And that's why I'm confused, because I haven't seen the leaders come out and really take any strong stance against this. And like you said, they voted in the past against, uh, you know, putting the Revolutionary Corps, uh, listing them as a terrorist organization. And I would expect at this moment, seeing what's happening in Iran and how women are in the forefront, that it would be the parties in the left that would actually be leading this movement and helping the Iranian people, not necessarily the conservative party, which uh, to me, it's it's a little bit interesting to see that the roles have been reversed in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say we have we have a long tradition as a conservative party of of human rights advocacy um, and also a level of realism when it comes to uh, security. And um, and I think that's, you know, we what the accusation we make to the other parties is that they're they're very interested in the image, uh, but that they don't have the substance to, to back it up. Go ahead, Reza, you were going to chime in on that. Yes, uh, I was going to say that, yeah, NDP in the past was a little different than NDP in the past few years. Uh, I mean, in 1980, uh, the, uh, the resolution or the motion to uh, uh, to proclaim the massacre of 1988 in the Iranian prisons by the order of Khan Khomeini, uh, the first supreme leader of Iran, uh, was considered by the House of Commons as uh, a crime against humanity. That was a motion put forward by by the NDP and, of mm. course, supported by uh, by both Conservative Party and Liberal Party, but the initiative came from, from the NDP. But since then, NDP has changed a little direction. In the last, um, in the past few days, when there was a, a big rally in Vancouver, I saw actually I was there. Uh, I, I saw Jack Jack Singh in, in Vancouver among the among the people who were you know uh, demonstrating on the on the streets there. So he was there, but I think that is not adequate. I think the the, the move which recently our Prime Minister and also Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland explicitly came out and called the Iranian regime as terrorist regime. I think that was a pretty strong statement. And we would like all politicians really come out and make similar statements, but not only in the statement side, uh, I think we should take as a country, uh, as a country, we should take a very succinct uh, steps. The same thing, as I said, you know, uh, our former prime minister Mahroni did uh, in relation to South Africa. And the Canada is very well positioned uh, to take the leadership on the, on the human rights issues in Iran and also help the Iranian people to achieve their goal, which is getting rid of this brutal regime and establishing a democracy there. The same thing Canada can, you know, Canada did, as I said, in the South African case. I think this is a time for our leaders to uh, give some serious thought to that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I agree with you about the aspiration for serious Canadian leadership. I think it's, uh, I don't know. I think I think frankly, 
the government the government will on that is a is a big uh, is a big question. But but yeah, like look, uh, this these are these are really important issues, and and I think Canada has some unique competences that we could bring to the table. But but I think it seems to me we've been perceived as as actually a country of safe haven for friends of the regime, and that that has maybe negatively affected our perception in terms of our ability to engage on this. Let's let's talk in the in the final few minutes we have about that issue. Both of you have mentioned, and we've we've talked about it in 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 other contexts, kind of this issue of, of money laundering, of uh, of of, but also of threats and intimidation. It's incredible to me that even family members of those killed uh, in flight PS seven five two shot down by the IRGC have faced intimidation here in Canada for for speaking out. How big a problem is this of people who who oppose the regime being threatened or or uh, or having family members threatened? Uh, and what do you think we can do about that uh, that piece of it? it? It's a pretty big problem. I mean, this is something that I've raised many, many times. I'm sure I don't know if Mr. Moriti has, but a lot of Iranian people, Iranian Canadians have this concern. I can give you an example. My husband, for example, he does uh, TV shows and he interviews activists in Iran and he's very well known and he's gotten some problems with, you know, weird messages and emails and just things that he he's felt like is threatening to him and he's always concerned about his own safety and my safety and so it's it's a concern and we've raised this for so many years and it's shocking to me that the government has never really taken at least that's my perception that the government has never taken that issue seriously i've never seen any steps being taken uh, to try to address this and that's why I mentioned, you know, when they're putting uh, some of these revolutionary corp, the specific individuals, uh, they're making them inadmissible. What are they doing about people that are already here? Uh, what I really want to know is what steps is the government going to take about people that are already here threatening the safety of Iranian Canadians who are voicing their concerns about the situation in Iran? Yeah. Uh, Reza, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, uh, I'm just following Sayer's comments. I, I think uh, some of the, uh, you know, we, we know that many of uh, elements of Iranian regime, they are living in Canada in various cities, and they are active in various sectors of the society, um, in economy, and, um, you know, they're just living in this country, uh, in Vancouver, in Toronto, uh, they have purchased very, very expensive houses, and uh, they are here, they're organizing religious events on the streets of Toronto, uh, and this is the kind of threat to the, uh, to the you know, to Canadians, uh, in particular Canadian, Canadian from the Iranian background. And we saw this in, in the Ashura um, celebration or Ashura event on the streets in Toronto and down the street. Uh, and one person came and actually threatened uh, a group of people. So these, these things are happening. And it's rather unfortunate because in the past, our immigration law has been a little bit relaxed in terms of, uh, you know, opening doors for, for those people coming to this country. And I hear uh, from many people, I'm sure Saya has done too, people are saying, Iranians say, well, you know, we escaped from, from these people, from our homeland, and came to Canada. Now they are here in Canada. So where should we be, what should be escaping next? You know, I mean, the level of threat has been increased to this level that people are even using that sort of uh, uh, expression. So uh, this is the reality, and I think uh, our government needs to take uh, very decisive actions, particularly now with these, you know, the new announcements about the sanctions, Magnitsky law, and all of that. So they should they should control these uh, 
situation. Otherwise, it will be out of hand in the near future if things go like this. Any final thoughts you want to share before we before we wrap up? I uh, I'll say one other thing that that as a as someone working in politics, I, I'm just always inspired by the courage of people that are that are fighting for their freedom uh, and and involved in political activism in a context where where they could they could lose their lives in a moment because of the the stand they're they're taking. We have it uh, we have it so comparatively easy uh, in in politics and activism here in Canada. Any any final thoughts, uh, calls to action, suggestions, or uh, or words of wisdom from uh, from either of you? Maybe this time we'll go uh, Reza first, and then Saya, you can have the last word. Yeah, well, th- thank you again, um, Garnet, for having this uh, podcast with me, and it was a great delight to uh, be in the company of Saya. Uh, well, my my request and my thought would be, you know, again, our our leaders. Uh, in, in our country, Canada, that you know, keep a close eye on what's happening in Iran. And, and if we bring democracy to Iran, we have we could solve various problems of the world, in particular in the Middle East, mm. because this regime in Iran is the source of so many conflicts, so many atrocities uh, in Syria, in Iraq, in uh, Lebanon, in Yemen, in various other parts of the of the region as well, and in the world as well. I mean, see how many executions, how many terrorist actions they have done in Europe or in, in, in mm-hmm. the US and other countries. So by removing this regime from, from the from Iranian government and bringing a democracy there, we are going not only to solve the problem of Iranian people, but also many people in the region and worldwide too. Yeah, that's a great point. And, um... Yeah, even Ukraine, right? I mean, we we're seeing some news yes, lately about uh, Iranian technology uh, on yeah. the Russian side. They're targeting, uh, sadly, uh, civilians. Yeah, that's that's a that's a very important point, and um, I think it's not it's not it's not just in Iran. The Iranian people are, in a way, in the front lines of this fight against a regime that is threatening. Um, threatening all of us, but in particular, uh, that is fomenting conflict and violence and other other uh, other regions. It's a it's an it's an incredibly hopeful thought. You know what what would the Middle East look like with a democratic Iran at the at the heart of it? Saya, go ahead. Final word for you. Yeah, just picking up on what Mr. Moriti was saying, I think it's really important for us Canadians to realize that the regime is not just a threat to the Iranians in Iran. They are a threat to everyone. Really, they've been funding terrorist organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah for so many years and now they're involved in the Ukraine-Russia war Mm. and they're building nuclear weapons so it's not just the Iranian people that are in danger it's everyone and it's in the best interest of western governments to stop it when they can and I'm very hopeful that your party is going to continue what you've been doing and putting pressure on the government to make sure that the steps the concrete steps that we need to help the Iranian people they take place. And I'm very thankful for you and, and for everything that you've been doing. Thank you very much. Thank you to, to both of you for coming on this uh, podcast again, but but uh, but more importantly, for the work that you are doing. That, that's a wrap for today. Thank you, everybody, for, for listening. We're doing uh, episodes every two weeks this fall and uh, bringing you stories from here in Canada and around the world. Uh, stories of of conflict, of injustice, but also of of the ability of people to uh, to fight back against injustice with immense courage. So thank you for listening. Please share this episode uh, with with your family and friends uh, on social media, and consider li- leaving a review for us. And we'll be back again with more resuming debate. 
two weeks from now. Mm-hmm.